welcome to a guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Radiolab, On the Media, and Ring of Fire. The nomination process for this year's podcast awards is now open. Go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com for details on how to nominate the show. Uh, you want to get depressed? Do you want to get depressed? How is this for depressing? Sean Hannity just signed a hundred million dollar deal. And that's not even for TV. That's his radio job. Five years, $20 million a year. hundred million dollars over. Oh, there's no justice in the world. You wonder why they do it sometimes, right? Why endlessly repeat Republican talking points? And Sean Hannity's a robot. He's not even like Limbaugh or O'Reilly, which people could make an argument are entertaining. He's just, I am Sean Hannity. I will now tell you the official Republican position. Gets paid for it, man. $100 million. I feel like I'm missing something. I didn't know there was this much money in radio for you to give it away like that. I mean, I knew it was there, but I know you can give it to one guy. Didn't Rush get a $100 million signing bonus as uh, part of whatever deal he had? Yeah, he did. So, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of which commercials are giving this kind of money. Where is the money exactly coming from? I, mean, wh- <laughs> I know what you're trying to ask. You're trying to ask, where the hell is this money? We're on the radio. Where's, where is it? What's going on? Well, it, look, here's a... a, a I, I, that's such a long answer, right? But let me give you the short, uh, not even the short version, but a short answer. Let's put it that way. Um, number one, they're on a billion stations. And credit where credit is due. They are. I mean, how they got there, you can ha- make a case for. And it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Do they deserve it? Do they have great ratings? Those are all open to question. Like, for example, uh, uh, under tremendous infrastructure problems, Tom Hartman is beating uh, Rush Limbaugh in Portland, for example. In Oregon, right? So, and he's on a much "quote unquote" weaker station. It means it goes to less people. Its signal goes to uh, less people. He has no promotion budget, no marketing budget at all. Rush Limbaugh has this giant company behind him that is constantly promoting him, and Hartman's still beating him, right? So, uh, is it that these hosts are unbelievable? No. In fact, Sean Hannity's ratings suck in a lot of the markets. But what they've achieved is uh, scale. And by that I mean it's a massive operation, and since it's so large, it, inv- it invites large advertisers. And they've got the whole conventional wisdom behind them. The conventional wisdom is conservative radio works, conservative radio gets uh, pays off for advertisers, and they've beaten the people's heads through Fox News Channel and all these other talk hosts on the radio that uh, progressive radio doesn't work, which is, of course, ridiculous. And you'll show advertisers, look, here are the better ratings for the progressive show. And they go, oh, yeah, that won't work. No, but listen, hello, schmucky ratings. More people are listening to this one than this one. Ah, oh, yeah, that can't work. Why? I, I don't know. I heard on Fox News that Air America's failing. <laughs> and, he, and JR, we will get through them. We will, right? I don't mean the Young Turks. I mean... <laughs> some sort of truth and justice and progressive radio overall, right? Because there's, so, there's only so long you can go uh, in avoiding the facts. The Bush administration found that out. Apparently it goes about five and a half, six years, and then the American people go, oh, yeah, the facts. That's kind of inconvenient. Uh, and look, here's, I'll point out one other thing. And now that you got me on the warpath on this, Fox News Channel lost $90 million a year for five straight years. $450 million, Okay. 
and nobody ever said they were failing. New York Post, another Rupert Murdoch-owned operation, loses $50 million a year every single year. Apparently, conservative opinion on, in newspapers don't work. Uh, apparently, trash outlets like the New York Post don't work. You know, if you'd said in year three of Fox News Channel, hey, how's it going? They would have said, well, so far we've lost $270 million, and we plan to lose another $180 million. So you would think it was disastrous. Fox News, uh, Fox Business Channel spent $200 million. Uh, and what do they got to show for it? The Young Turks YouTube channel has more viewers, I'm not kidding, than all Fox Business Channel. And let's just say we didn't spend $200 million. Okay. By the way, little side note, uh, we should celebrate on Sunday, our Young Turks YouTube channel passed 25 million views overall. 25 million views. That's not bad, man. Rupert Murdoch is envious. <laughs> so, all right, now I got into some of the structural things, but go ahead. Right, that, that's, that's, that's how they convince people. Now, I didn't know this money existed. I mean, you can say, yeah, you know, this is the brand that works. We'll give me all this stuff, but who is piling in? When a pro athlete signs a, a $100 million signing bonus, people go, damn. They must really be selling out tickets at this stadium. They must really have some big revenue on the jersey sales, something. This owner's making a lot of money. Where, again? I mean, <laughs> they don't charge for um, like the same cost that Ford does for a commercial at the Super Bowl mm -hmm. on, on Fox or whatever it was on last year. No, I'll tell you what it is, Chair. Look, it, it's, a, it's a good question. It really is. Uh, as far as radio itself is concerned, it's just the fact that they're massive is why they're getting the money. So think about it this way. Friends, for example, when it was on TV, charged a lot of money for their ads. A 30-second ad, I think, ran $550,000, if I'm not mistaken. That's a lot of money. Now, why? Because they had a lot of viewers. Radio can't come close to charging that kind of money because they don't have as many uh, listeners, right? But what radio does have is uh, mass. And what do I mean by that? Friends is on for half an hour a week. Just take a normal sitcom, although they're not on anymore. Uh, Rush Limbaugh is on for three hours a day, every single day. He just has so much more advertising inventory. And he says, look, I reach 14 million people. I don't believe it. He says he reaches 20 million people. Talkers Magazine says he reaches 14 million people. But uh, the radio industry is full of nothing but wall-to-wall -wall liars. <laughs> okay. I don't know if they're taking him at his word. They're crazy if they are. And the numbers in radio are very, very hard to track. Right, so he says, "Hey, listen, I do a three-hour show that is packed. I get with 25 minutes of commercials an hour, and I do it three hours a day, and I got 14 million listeners every single day. Now, the listeners, I'm telling you, aren't true. No, but he does. He does have a massive, large number of viewers. I don't think it's 14 million. That's how it adds up. It just adds up and adds up. So that's 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 the answer." And that's why Sean Hannity can get $100 million too. Sean Hannity claims to be on 500 radio stations. I don't believe there are 500 talk stations in the country. They just make up numbers. They just make them up. Okay? Anyway, uh, one day we hope to be on 750 radio stations, making $850 million. Talking about conservative radio can't work. <laughs> one final thing. We, you know, we, I keep saying one final thing, but I promise this is the last one on this. Uh, we were at Netroots Nation, you know, I say we, I was at Netroots Nation, which was this blogger conference over the weekend in Austin, Texas, that Al Gore was at, Howard Dean, Nancy Pelosi, etc. And I was on a couple of panels, and on one of the panels I was on was Sam Cedar, also Bear America. Um, and 
Uh, somebody asked us about uh, why uh, conservatives do so well on talk radio, right? I said, look, and, the, and you know, there's this co popular misconception that uh, only, and if you go to talk show conferences, this is what they all say, every single one of them say, well, liberals don't know how to be entertaining. <laughs> Have you heard anything so ridiculous in your life? Hollywood and the entertainment industry is packed wall to wall with liberals. In fact, that's what Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and the rest of the conservatives tell us. They say, oh, Hollywood's a bunch of liberals. Of course, you know why? Liberals are entertaining. That's why. Conservatives don't know how to be entertaining. Remember that embarrassing program they did on Fox News Channel? Uh, that uh, was the half-hour comedy show where they try to kind of do a daily show version? Oh, it was pathetic. It should go in a museum somewhere as the least funny show ever attempted by man. And liberals don't know how to be entertaining. <laughs> That's absurd. It's absurd on its face. So uh, how did uh, conservative uh, uh, talkers take over AM radio? And understand that. They took over AM radio because nobody else wanted to be on AM radio. I I'm being serious. That was like a cave in Waziristan. They're like, I don't know. We can't go on TV. We're not talented enough. We can't make movies. We're not talented enough. Uh, we can't uh, do it on FM radio that people actually listen to FM radio. I don't know. I found this little bunker. It's called AM radio. And let me just do a show for crazy people and see if that works. And to their credit, it did work. It turns out there was crazy conservatives in the country, and they met an unmet need. Credit to them. And they made a lot of money doing it. That's how America works. God bless them. But understand, it's not like they have, were this giant success. They barely found a cave somewhere in the media world where they could find the other crazies and shout at them and go, Hey, yeah, you over there. Do you think all the liberals are jerks who are destroying the country and conservatives rock the world and we should invade more countries? And people are like, yeah, yeah. Because 25% of the country does think that. So this great shining success is a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of the entertainment industry. Does that make me crazy? Does that make me crazy? Does that make me crazy? Probably. And all that you have in the time of your I wanted to make a case for talking about science to folks who may not be all that well-versed or even all that interested in science-y things, because talking about this stuff, I argued, has very powerful consequences. So, so take a listen. Thank you, Kent Cressa, and thank you, Jean-Luc Chameau, and thank you, Judy Campbell, and thank you, Congressman Schiff, and thank you, Mayor Baggart, Bogart, and especially... Thank you to all 205 members of the Caltech class of 2008, plus the extra 14 who are getting pretty close and allowed to sit here. Uh, <clears throat> congratulations to all of you. It's a great, great honor to be here. Normally, if you're a science reporter at NPR at ABC, you, you, a trip to Caltech means that you call ahead, 
and you ask for a few precious moments with a world-class intellectual whatever, and you're ushered in, and you furiously take notes all the time thinking, do I have any idea what this man is saying? This woman, I'm sure you know the feeling. And uh, <clears throat> when I got my invitation asking me to give you guys a lecture, I thought, come on, like, what can I tell you? But I thought of something. So, and it's something that's going to happen to you, you sitting here with the black hats, uh, in the next hour or two. There you'll be in your cap and gown, surrounded by your family and by friends and by friends of friends. And somebody, you know, maybe an uncle or a buddy, somebody, is going to turn to you and say, so, like, what were you doing at Caltech? I mean, what, what were you working on? Not that they really want to know, you know. <clears throat> but after all, you've been here for four years, so you know, or even, you know, a different number if you're a grad student, you must have been doing something here, so it's only polite to ask. And I, and I know that a lot of you have scientifically literate dads and moms and some brothers and some sisters, not all of them, of course, but some. And uh, let's assume that one of these people, let's say to make it a relative, let's say that he will make it a he. He's not a scientist. He's not an engineer. And the last time he had a thought, a complex thought about biology or math was back in 11th grade when he got a C- minus in both subjects and vowed never, ever to think about biology or math ever again. But because this is your day and because this person loves you or because he can't really think of anything to say after, hey, uh, he asks about your work. <laughs> and to make it still more interesting, let's assume that if you explain to this person what you've been working on, you might have to use certain words like protein or quark or differential or maybe hypotenuse and 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 if you do they're going to listen to you very very politely but upstairs those words are going to mean not a whole lot to them you know because science is not their thing they can lip sync every word to instincts bye 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 but you know hypotenuse is hard so here's my question when you are asked what are you working on should you think there's no way I can talk about my science with this guy because I don't have the talent, I don't have the words, I don't have the patience to do it. It's too hard. And anyway, what's the point? Which is, by the way, not an unusual position. No less than Isaac Newton, and I mean Sir Isaac Newton, that one, when asked, why did you make your Principia Mathematica, your earth-shaking book about gravity and laws of motion, so impossibly hard to read, he said, well, I considered writing a popular version that people might understand, but, and I am quoting Newton here, to avoid being baited by little smatterers in mathematics, that was his phrase, little smatterers, he intentionally wrote a book in dense scholarly Latin with lots of math so that only scholars could follow. In other words, Isaac Newton didn't care to be understood by average folks. But here is the argument I want to make to you guys this morning. And you're not going to hear this advice often. I suggest you may never hear it again. When asked about your work, do not do what Isaac Newton did. No, no, no. When a cousin or an uncle or a buddy comes up and asks you, so what are you working on, even if it's hard to explain, even if you know they don't really want to hear it, not really, I urge you to give it a try. Because talking about science, telling stories to regular folks is not a trivial thing. Scientists need to tell stories to non-scientists because science stories, and you know this, have to compete with other stories about how the universe works and how the universe came to be. And some of those other stories, Bible stories, movie stories, myths, can be very beautiful and very compelling. But to protect science and scientists, this is not a gentle competition. So you've got to get in there and tell yours, your version of how things are and why things came to be. 
We all know about creationist science movements in America, but what you may not know is that movements are spreading all over the world. In Turkey, there's a group led by a man named Adnan Akhtar. He's a Muslim creationist, and his group produced a picture-packed 768-page quote, biology, unquote, textbook that's priced very, very cheaply so schools can have it for next to nothing, and that textbook is now used all over Turkey. It's written in clear and simple language using fabulous pictures, and the pictures are designed to prove that fossils show no evidence of evolution. And this group's books and their CD-ROMs and their grocery store magazines, they have grocery store magazines, their websites are so widespread and so inexpensive and so provocative with titles like The Bloody Ideology of Darwinism or The Evolution Deceit, that in Turkey's high schools, which are not religious schools, they have a long secular tradition there, evolution and Darwin are disappearing from the curriculum in high schools in that country. In 2006, when Turks were polled and asked, I want you to listen to this statement and tell us if it's true or false or you don't know. Here's the statement. Human beings, as we know them, developed from an earlier species of animals. In 2006, only 25% of the Turkish public said yes to that. That's a very low number. In Japan, 78% say humans evolved from a predecessor species. In the U.S., it's, it's 40%, but that's above Turkey. In Turkey, there was a debate, of course, and there's still one, sort of, except Mr. Oktar sued people who opposed his views, sued them for slander, managed to shut down their blogs in Turkey. His followers attacked biology professors as Maoists, Maoists, as Maoists for teaching evolution, which they called nothing but a deception imposed upon us by the dominators of the world system. High school teachers in Istanbul were fired because they taught evolution and not creation science. And while Mr. Oktar was recently arrested for his role in a sex ring operation, so he may be taking a break, uh, creation science is now taught all over Turkey. And while Turkey may seem an ocean or more away, it is not. In less than a month, Rush Limbaugh will celebrate his 20th year hosting the Rush Limbaugh Show. Rush is easily the most successful radio broadcaster with an audience of at least 14 million people a week. He just signed a $400 million eight-year re-up of his contract, making as much as all of the nightly news anchors combined.
His political clout remains strong, fresh off of Operation Chaos, in which he convinced Republicans to vote for Hillary Clinton in order to prolong the bruising Democratic nomination fight. And he hangs out with Supreme Court justices. But 14 years after Limbaugh was credited with ushering in the Republican Revolution and the contract with America, is he still capable of swaying a presidential election? Zev Chaffetz has written about Limbaugh for this weekend's New York Times Magazine, and he joins us now. Zev, welcome to OTM. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Okay, first question. You are, you are representing the New York Times, the apotheosis of the Eastern liberal media elite. How the hell did you get in to see <laughs> Rush Limbaugh? I asked nicely and persistently. Limbaugh did get his back up with you when you persistently questioned him about his clout. Uh, is it your belief that, in fact, he has begun to lose impact, uh, maybe to the likes of Sean Hannity or Michael Savage or any of the right-wing screamers? I talked to Michael Harrison, who's the publisher of Talkers Magazine, which is the industry magazine, and he told me that Limbaugh is, retains his position. He described him as something of like a combination of Elvis and the Beatles, as far as AM talk radio is concerned. Jay Nordlinger, who was the managing editor of the National Review, told me that when he was hiring guys out of college for uh, the National Review, they would come in and say that they became conservatives by listening to Rush Limbaugh. So I think that maybe his impact is less across the spectrum than it is across generations. That there, He's been on for 20 years. There are already people who see him as sort of the inspiration for their conservative views and their children's conservative views. Now, I want to come to the McCain issue, because in order to support McCain in the upcoming election, he will have to go after Obama. Right. And he has already complained on the air of how difficult it is to go after Obama lest he be tarred with the R word. Right. And he's clearly concerned about this, but he's also forged a strategy. Can you tell me uh, what that is? He appointed his call screener, a guy whose name is James Golden, and he calls both Snurdly, who's an African-American, to be the official Obama criticizer. And of course, this is done as a way of... of uh... Laundering? No, 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 no. He's laughing at the media's sensitivities. You know, I asked him specifically, I said, are you going to have a problem with an African-American candidate? And he said, no, you know, Obama's a liberal and I'll criticize him as a liberal, which is what he does. Your piece on Limbaugh was, was very generous, uh, I would say even flattering. You seem to give him a pass for his excesses. And when I'm talking about excesses, I'm talking about ad hominem attacks, truly mean-spirited stuff that goes way beyond satire and into the uh, the politics of vilification. And also so playing fast and loose with the truth, seizing on some news item and grossly misrepresenting it and, and creating a lot of hubbub, using as the kernel of his satire something that is just fundamentally untrue. Well, do you have an example of that? I'm not an apologist for Rush Limbaugh, but I'm a little bit defensive because I think that the liberal media takes such an unfair view of him. I hear people being vilified on the radio, on all sorts of radio stations, uh, by all sorts of people, all day long. And Limbaugh is not worse than many of the ones I hear even on NPR. He just has a different point of view. Uh, the NAACP should have a riot rehearsal. They should get a liquor store and practice robberies. Um, not my sense of humor, but it's not a lie. 
Did Limbaugh not say that Abu Ghraib was no worse than a skull and bones initiation? Yeah, he did. It's his opinion. Yeah. Did he not deny that genocide was committed against the American Indian and, and state that the population is higher now than it was before Christopher Columbus of Native Americans? Mm, I don't know. Uh, did they ask him that either? I don't know what the population was before Christopher Columbus. Yeah, it was about 15 million, and yeah, by the 19th century, it was 250,000. I mean, that's, what, that's the numbers. Okay, now, I know you don't want to be an apologist for Rush Limbaugh or his spokesman. Right. But do you not think that he is answerable for, for things that are a minimum offensive and obnoxious and mean-spirited that he's, he has said on the air? Yeah, you know, I, I do think that. I think he's answerable to the public. And I think that for people who find him more obnoxious and more mean-spirited than other people that they prefer to listen to, then they should answer him by turning him off. I wouldn't say that I see Limbaugh as an unmixed, you know, blessing, but I do think that it's good for the American media climate to have at least one very strong conservative Republican voice that is heard, you know, across the country. Uh, there's more than one today, but they're all there only because Limbaugh was the first. Well, Zev, I appreciate your time. Hey, you're very welcome. Zev Chaffetz wrote about the 20th Limbaugh-versary for the New York Times Magazine. Seen him with girls of the night And eat so rock sands to put on her red light They're all infected, but he'll be all right Cause he's a scumbag, don't you know I said he's a scumbag, don't you know Mr. Oktars, who aim their stories right at you, right at the heart of a place like this, at the values that Caltech has always honored from the beginning. I know you spent long nights cramming and sweating under the weight of too many assignments and too many tests and too many papers from too many professors who didn't realize there were other professors that were making you do the same tests and so forth and so forth. But somewhere in that nightmare of work, you may have noticed that your teachers were giving you more than tension headaches, they were giving you values. A deep respect for curiosity, for doubt, always doubt, for open-mindedness, for going wherever the data leads, no matter how uncomfortable, for honesty, for discipline, and most of all, 
the belief that anybody, no matter where they're from, no matter what their language, no matter what their religion, no matter what their politics, no matter what their age or their temperament. I mean, this place has seen monstrous egos and bongo players and people who dress in Viking hats. But if you can learn how to sit down in a laboratory and think in an orderly way, and if you have the patience to stare and stare and stare and stare, looking for a pattern in nature, you're welcome here. It may be boring, it may be sometimes very exhausting, but there's a freedom, a freedom in this way of looking that is precious in the world. And that freedom can be attacked or defended with stories. Stories matter. After all, what is a science experiment? But you make up a story that may or may not be true, and then you test that story in the real world to see what happens. So for example, let's say you're in Pisa, it's 1590, and a guy named Galileo comes up to you and says, hello there. He actually probably wouldn't say it that way. but uh, You see, I have a cannonball in my right hand. It's a very, very heavy thing to be sure. But in my left hand, sir, I, I have a golf ball. Well, it wouldn't be golf balls before golf. In my left hand, I have a musket ball, which is lighter than the cannonball. Now, sir, if I told you that these two balls have dropped from the same high place at the same time, in spite of their five or tenfold difference in weight, that they would hit the ground simultaneously, the light one and the heavy one, dropping, landing at the exact same time, would you like to see me try? Whether Galileo actually did this or not, if a guy named Galileo proposed this to you, wouldn't you stick around just to see how it comes out? Galileo, for my purposes, is the great un-Newton. Unlike Newton, he had a flair for narrative, a storyteller's sense. Unlike Newton, he wanted to tell people what was on his mind. Unlike Newton, he thought that people could understand him. That's why he got in so much trouble. In his famous book, The Dialogues, about the sun being the center of the solar system, he didn't write it in Latin. He wrote it in Italian for a mass audience. And the writing was gorgeous. It was poetic. It was combative. It was funny. It was a running conversation between three good friends who spent four days together arguing and eating and boating through Venice in gondolas. The argument being, is the Earth the center of the solar system or might it be the sun? And the text of that book has little pictures, line drawings that he made, and he put in marginal headings to break up the text so you wouldn't have a big sheet of writing. And while there are numbers in his book, he doesn't get to them until two-thirds through the book. And if you skip the numbers, you don't miss that much. So. Because Galileo's book was so easy to read and such a page-turner, it so threatened the established order that Galileo, as you know, was put under house arrest. And it wasn't just his science that was alarming. I think it was the power of his storytelling. That's what made him extra dangerous, because stories have this power. People like them. E.O. Wilson, the great scientist and the great storyteller, writes that science, like the rest of culture, is based on the manufacture of narrative. We all live by narrative. He doesn't know the half of it. I work on radio and TV, and I've learned that I can go on primetime TV, and I have, and do an hour on string theory and talk about multiple dimensions and space-time curvature and supersymmetries. This is very odd and very hard stuff for grandma, for your brother, the cousin I was talking about before. And yet a whole lot of people, a few million people, will sit there the whole time. I mean, ABC clocks this kind of thing. And they sit and they watch, and apparently, I like to assume, they're pretty fascinated. But the program ends, and then you have like a bunch of ads, like seven commercials and one network ID, and three and a half to five minutes pass, and the next program comes on the very same channel. And it's about extraterrestrials landing in anti-gravity machines to examine the breasts of innocent cocktail waitresses. 
And the same people who were watching the previous hour sit there with the same sense of awe and the same sense of fascination, and they think, wow, and they kind of believe it too. People are not scrupulous about stories. Truth, fiction, eh. It's like this endless back and forth uh, between Ross and Phoebe in the TV show Friends, if you know the show. Ross is a paleontologist. He studies dinosaurs. Phoebe is his masseuse friend. She doesn't study anything, but she knows everything. And in a typical episode, Ross sits down and very carefully explains how opposable thumbs evolved slowly over time. And Phoebe listens very respectfully, and Ross finishes. So, he says, you see how evolution explains opposable thumbs? Or, says Phoebe, maybe the overlords need them to steer their spacecrafts. <laughs> so people can slip very easily from reason to fantasy, and they believe both, and they don't feel a need to be consistent. They just want to feel <clears throat> like they're absorbed, like they're swept away. And when you tell stories, boy, this hat is driving me nuts. I'm going to just... <laughs> you can't do it, only me. <laughs> uh... I don't know what's wrong with my hair, but just forgive me here. <laughs> when you tell stories to Americans, really to anybody in the world, you have to remember there are lots of Phoebes, stories with gripping visuals and good punchlines and stories that make intuitive sense, that make sensual sense to your eyes and to your ears and to your touch. They can convince. They have power. You may not believe that two balls, one heavy and one light, dropped from the same high place will drop together, but if you see it with your own eyes, that you remember. And as science gets harder, the metaphor becomes more useful and even necessary. I mean, more and more of what science teaches about the world is not intuitive that way. It makes no sensual sense. This starts early in high school, that if you slap your hand on a hard surface like, like that, the outer electrons on my hand and the electron on this wood here are repelling each other. This is the electromagnetic forces, you know. But electrons just don't like being around other electrons. So the reason my hand didn't go through the surface then is that two platoons of electrons, mine and the tables, on a line of scrimmage got in each other's face. Okay? That's harder, though, to add faces and motives and football analogies to electrons. And there's some of you sitting here, probably here, who say, you can't talk about nature that way. It distorts what's true. What's true is what you see in equations, in the math that points to these laws. But I go back to my man Galileo, who was maybe the first, in Western tradition anyway, to honor mathematics as the primal force of knowledge. The logic of the universe, he said in his book, The Assayer, is written in the language of mathematics without which one is wandering around in a dark labyrinth. But having honored math, Galileo was very happy to create beautiful metaphors, to invent marvelous characters, to draw pictures. He knew how to light that labyrinth so the rest of us could see inside. Because the more abstract and mathematical science gets, the more we need to imagine something concrete. As the physicist Alan Lightman has said, we are blind people inventing what we don't see. Yeah.
The Pap Attack. Glenn Beck likes to brag about the fact that his long history of drug abuse and alcoholism is what drove him to become a right-wing radio talk show host, a host with a mission to attack everything that doesn't goose-step to a weird neo-nut agenda that only Tom DeLay-styled right-wing freaks can really relate to. But hey, it doesn't seem to bother ABC, it doesn't bother CNN, that Beck is a closet kook who calls President Jimmy Carter in his words, a waste of skin. And ABC and CNN executives must think it's pretty cool that Beck suggests that he'd like to strangle Michael Moore live on the air. Beck describes himself as a Mormon who, after years of serious drug abuse and alcohol abuse, has now found God in Mormonism. But the Mormons don't seem to be getting a very uplifting message through Beck's prematurely balding Neanderthal head. In fact, here's the short list of how bonkers this temporary TV buffoon really is. When he was asked about Hurricane Katrina victims, Beck makes this statement. I think I could hate the Katrina victims faster than I hate the 9-11 victims. In other words, it's just fine with the CNN executives and ABC executives that Beck tells us he hates innocent men, women, and children who have drowned or burned to death through no fault of their own. Richard Parsons with CNN, Robert Iger with ABC News, are you frigging listening? Just in case you are, let's go on with the Beck list. Beck is a strong advocate for torturing enemy combatants because just like his other neocon nut peeps, he's a coward who's never going to have to see military action. And ABC's new talking neocon nut loves to refer to Cindy Sheehan as a pretty big prostitute. I might point out she actually lost a son in Iraq. Beck is TV's new lapdog corporate punk who makes it a point to regularly tell his peculiar following that smoking regulations that are supposed to protect kids are ridiculous. And he tells those same oddball listeners that global warming is only tinfoil hat hype. And I just have to add this. For some odd reason, Beck tells his listening public that he suffers from attention deficit disorder. He seems proud of that part of his mental ailments. But here's some advice, Glenn. Get back on your Ritalin because you're missing a few things that are going on around you. Like the Iraq war that you've avoided fighting in but love so dearly. It's a George Bush disaster, Glenn. Or maybe your Ritalin-deprived mind has you missing the point that this president that you still consider a brilliant visionary, well, 65% of the American public regard him as a miserable failure. He's your kind of guy. So I got to wonder, what is it that the TV marketing at ABC and CNN is going after by making Glenn Beck their newest talking head? He's been fired as a Christian radio personality. He's been fired as a rock station DJ. He's been fired as a country western station DJ. Sounds like a pretty good trend. Maybe it's a trend ABC and CNN should pay more attention to.
The more abstract and mathematical science gets, the more we need to imagine something concrete. As the physicist Alan Lightman has said, we are blind people inventing what we don't see. And yet 400 years later, many scientists become, are very wary of metaphors, of adjectives, of the active tense. It was observed that is much nicer for these people for some reason than I saw. And I can tell you from personal experience, they do not like talking to reporters because they think whatever they say, this journalist person is going to turn it into something stupid and cartoony and wrong. And yeah, you're applauding, but yeah, and maybe that's true. But I was happy to learn that these people are just as nasty about each other. My favorite example <laughs> is a pair of letters from Werner Heisenberg and Erwin Schrodinger, two of the 20th century's great physicists. Schrodinger liked to think in pictures, his most famous one being the image of a cat in a box who paradoxically is both alive and dead at the same time. Don't ask. The point is, Schrodinger loved pictures, and Heisenberg, he loved numbers. And when Schrodinger read Heisenberg's papers, they were so mathematical, he wrote... I am repelled, his word, I am repelled by the methods of transcendental algebra that so lack visualizability. And Heisenberg answered back, oh yeah? Well, I mean, probably didn't say it that way. Uh, the more I reflect on Schrodinger's work, the more disgusting I find it. And disgusting is a quote, it's Heisenberg's word. So there is a tension here among scientists between two kinds of truth, math and narrative. But the job that we face, and I should come clean with you and tell you what's really on my mind here, is to put more stories out there about nature that are true and complex, not dumbed down, but still have the power to enthrall, to excite, to remind people there's a deep beauty, a many-leveled beauty in the world. And what scientists say is not their offhand opinion. It's hard-won information. It's carefully hewn from the world. It's not the bunch of ideas from a tribe of privileged intellectuals who look down on everybody, even though they are indeed up here looking down on you. But it's my sense that if more scientists wanted to, they could learn how to tell their stories with words and pictures and metaphor, and people will hear and remember those stories and not be as willing to accept the other folks' stories, or at least there'll be a tug of war. And I think that the science stories too, will surprisingly win. I remember standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, looking down at that enormous hole created by running water, endlessly running water, felt fed by a distant Colorado rain. And I thought, you know, how did this beautiful thing happen? And in my head, I heard a line written by Lauren Isley, a great, great scientist and writer, a line I read in college, which describes the magnificent violence hidden in a raindrop. And when I look back at the canyon, at the roaring river there, that's what I saw. Magnificent violence hidden in a torrent of old raindrops. Now, we can't all be that good. And even when we try, we don't always win. Again, I'm thinking of Ross, again, poor Ross, from the show Friends. He puts 200 fossils in front of Phoebe, brings them in a suitcase, to show her how over time fossils gradually change and evolve into recognizable forms. And he, he says, I'm going to lay them out for you, all, for you to see, and you're going to see this with your own eyes, because these fossils are from all over the world. And Phoebe says, really, you can actually see it? And Ross says, you bet, from the U.S., China, Africa, all over. And Phoebe says, well, you know, I didn't know that. And Ross says, well, there you go. And Phoebe says, huh. So now the real question is, who put those fossils there and why? <laughs> So yes, science stories don't always win, but at the very least, it should be a tug of war. And if you tell them right, they have power to change minds. On my way here, I read a story in Smithsonian Magazine. That's a good example of what I'm talking about. Imagine that you're sitting on your porch with a friend, a non-science friend, 
And as you sit there, a robin, an ordinary robin, wanders onto the lawn, and you say to your friend, you see that robin? Did you know that robins, in fact, all birds, are directly descended from dinosaurs, and in a way, that robin is a small, feathery, modern dinosaur, huh? And if your friends are like my friends, she would say, what? what you, well, go away. But don't go away. Instead, you could tell them a story, which is how I'm going to conclude. Eight years ago, Bob Harmon, who works for the Museum of the Rockies, was having lunch in a canyon somewhere in Montana, and he looked up at a big rock face, and he saw a bone sticking out of the wall, just a bit. The bone turned out to be part of a Tyrannosaurus rex, one of the best-preserved examples of a T-Rex found anywhere. And after three years of carefully, carefully, carefully chipping away, they got a 2,000-pound skeleton out of the wall, and it was removed from the canyon, and the dinosaur was named Bob, in honor of Mr. Harmon, and on the way out, for various logistical reasons, they had to break a leg bone. And some of the fragments were sent to laboratory scientists around the world, including to a scientist in North Carolina named Mary Schweitzer. So Mary Schweitzer gets a bone, a bone fragment in the mail, and she opens it up and she looks at it. And although Bob the dinosaur was 68 million years old, almost immediately she said, as soon as she looked, this is not a Bob. This dinosaur is a girl, and she's a pregnant girl. <laughs> and what Mary knew is that when women get pregnant, they use calcium from their bones to build the skeletons of their developing fetuses. And if the mother's a bird mother, well, birds form a very distinct structure in their bones when they're pregnant and they need calcium to build eggs, eggshells. So Mary had studied birds, and when she looked at the dinosaur bone fragments, she saw just what pregnant birds have. But, you know, just to be sure, she looked up the most primitive birds, the emu and the ostrich, and she called a bunch of ostrich breeders in North Carolina, and she says, anybody have a dead female? I need a, I need a leg bone here. And a few months pass, and the phone rings, and it's a farmer saying, y'all need that lady ostrich? And Mary and her two assistants drove to this farm to collect a dead ostrich, which was in a farmer's backhoe bucket, and drove it back to Raleigh. And what do you know, the former ostrich had been a pregnant former ostrich, and the next year, Mary published a paper in Science which shows the dinosaur bone right next to the, ox the uh, ostrich bone showing nearly identical features. And since then, another T-Rex, this one in Argentina, was found to have the same calcium structure. So there's more evidence here that when you look deep inside dinosaurs and deep inside birds, what you see is very, very similar, which gives us yet another reason to think that the robin in your front yard is an itty-bitty dinosaur. And then Mary went on to do many more interesting things about dinosaurs. But if your non-science friend can listen to that story and lean in a little and hear how scientists work with bones and dead birds in buckets, patiently looking for patterns, you have just placed a sword in the hand of your friend. So the next time somebody tells her that scientists are know-it-alls who toss off opinions, that scientists, science is an elitist plot, she would think, well, but I did hear this story. And the scientific method gets a little more defense, a little protection. But better than that, the next time your friend sees a robin, she'll see, I hope, more than a robin. She'll glance at a little bird pecking for worms on the lawn, and she'll travel 60 million years back in time to a place which creationists say did not exist. But now, because of your story, your friend has a pregnant Tyrannosaurus in her head with the unfortunate name Bob. <laughs> which makes robins and sparrows and chickadees and crows and all birds just a little more amazing and a little more delightful to look at. Which means you win. The creationists can't beat delight. You have smote them with your story. So ladies and gentlemen of the class of 2008, 
mindful of the fact that this place, this institution, which is about to confer upon you a bachelor's of science degree, and all you others here and there who are getting your master's and your doctorates, knowing as you must that places like this, with their culture of intellectual freedom and respect for truth, and love of inquiry, not to mention illegal bonfires on city streets and basketball teams that lose 207 games in a row, but not the women's team. I heard they have their astonishing two-game back-to-back winning streak. Yes, yes. You know, you know that when you receive your degree today, you are part of and you are celebrating something very rare and very precious and very fragile in our world. This place celebrates freedom. And because you are now free men and women, you have to protect what you've been given by helping others who haven't been here and who are never coming here to understand the value of what you do and what your teachers do and what their predecessors have done. Which is why an hour or so from now, when your brother or your aunt or your mom asks you, so what have you been up to while you've been here? Take a chance, find the words, find the metaphor, share the beauty, and tell them what's on your mind tell them a story. Talk about crazies. Let's do it, man. <laughs> Perfect lead at Michael Savage on the radio, shouting crazy things. Now, this time he got in trouble for something that isn't even necessarily political, but a lot of people are breathing down his neck for this. It's about his comments about uh, autistic kids. Now you think, uh-oh, here comes Savage. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to Now you want me to tell yeah. you my opinion on autism, since I'm not talking about autism? Oh, a boy. fraud. A racket. <laughs> For a long while, we were hearing that every minority child had, had asthma. Why did they suddenly, why was there an asthma epidemic amongst minority children? Because I'll tell you why. The children got extra welfare if they were, were disabled, and they got extra help in school. It was a money racket. Everyone went in and was told, <coughs> when the nurse looks at you, you go, <coughs> I don't know, the dust got me. So everyone had asthma from the minority community. That was number one. Now the, uh, the illness du jour is autism. You know what autism is? I'll tell you what autism is in 99% of the cases. It's a brat who hasn't been told to cut the act out. That's what autism is. What do you mean they scream and they're silent? They don't have a father around to tell them, don't act like a moron, you'll get nowhere in life. Stop acting like a putz. Straighten up, act like a man. Don't sit there crying and screaming, idiot. Autism. Everybody has an illness. 
If I behaved like a fool, my father called me a fool. And he said to me, don't behave like a fool. The worst thing he said, don't behave like a fool. Don't be anybody's dummy. Don't sound like an idiot. Don't act like a girl. Don't cry. That's what I was raised with. That's what you should raise your children with. Stop at the sensitivity training. You're turning your son into a girl, and you're turning a nation into a nation of losers and beaten men. That's why we have the politicians we have. <laughs> Dude, if you have a... Look, I'm laughing because the guy's always crazy, right? But if you have an autistic child, oh, that's going to make your blood boil. Oh, oh! you should tell that kid, hey, stop being a putz. Stop being a fool and an idiot, okay? Don't be a fool. That's what my dad told me. Yeah, I bet your dad told you that often. Okay, You don't have autism. You were just a fool. That's why your dad kept telling you that, okay? And I, I didn't realize there was a minority epidemic of asthma. I didn't know that, but maybe he's on to something. I don't know, right? But I'm going to leave that one alone. I want to come back to autism. See, the thing is, if he had left well enough alone, his rant about the... You know, turning the boys into girls and the ladies from losers. You know, you might disagree with that, and but it's within the normal realm of conservative ranting, right? And I, I give him that. I let him go. That's okay, right? Uh, and if he said, "Hey, you know what? Autism cases are being driven up because of the way struck the way the healthcare industry is structured, and there needs to be a pill for everything," I, I would have given him that, and I would. And I think that's an interesting conversation. Ninety-nine percent of autistic kids are making it up. And you should just yell at them more? Come on, dude. <laughs> I mean, how are you not going to get in trouble with that? Now, of course, the autistic, you know, the campaigns to fight autism throughout the country are limited about this. And I can guess what Michael Savage is going to tell them. Shut up, you fools, you putz! Ah, I don't care about you! <laughs> but, you see, here's my final point on this. There has to be bounds of reason as to how stupid you are. And how ignorant you are. And Michael Savage consistently goes beyond that bounds of reason. Like, I, I'm going to give you wide latitude. Go ahead, go ahead, say some of the autistic kids are making it up, which is going to drive parents with autistic kids crazy as it should, right? And he's never dealt with it. I mean, it's a classic conservative thing, right? You've never dealt with it. It's not your problem. So you like to pretend that everybody who has that problem doesn't really have it. And you don't, you have economic problems? No, you don't. You're, it's psychological. You're a nation of whiners. You have an autistic kid? No, you don't. Uh, I'm going to ignore what science says, and I'm going to tell you that they're just putzes and idiots. Because you never had an autistic kid. If you did, then all of a sudden you walk a little bit in their shoes and you go, uh, maybe not so much, right? I said, but I would have given them all that latitude, but you can't say 99% of autistic kids are faking it. That is not a... T I mean... But, of course, if you're a conservative, you can, because they don't care about the facts. They don't care about science. All they care about is their own stupid propaganda. And the people who take Michael Savage seriously, oof, you want to talk about people who need psychological help? Those are the people. They're not coming to get me, I'm coming to get them. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I'm very excited to announce that today's episode was produced by none other than my wonderful girlfriend, Julia. She uh, came in out of nowhere and decided she was interested in helping to produce a show or two. And so this past weekend, she just dove in headfirst and produced two shows in two days, just knocked them right out. 
and uh, and so we're very excited to welcome a new producer to the uh, family of producers who make the Best of the Left podcast. So I I certainly hope and expect to be hearing more from her, including not just this episode, but the next one coming out will also be her handiwork and uh, and more from her in the future. So this is it. This is uh, this is the big nomination period. The the podcast awards nomination process is now open and nominations come from the listeners not from you know a select committee anywhere it's all about you guys so we've posted links and very very simple instructions on how to nominate the show on the website at the best at excuse me best of the left podcast.com and uh and if you could just take <clears throat> literally about two minutes it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, it's going to help the show a lot uh, when and if we are nominated for a podcast award. People who wouldn't normally find our show will find it through through that, and uh, it's a great way to grow the audience, which we're, of course, always trying to do, uh, get the word about progressive politics and the liberal viewpoint out as far as we can, so... Uh, if you can help in that, it would be greatly appreciated. That isn't the only thing we've added to the website. We've also posted a new link to our listener survey right on the homepage of the website. And and that's just a great way for us to you know, get to know who's listening and for you to get a chance to tell us what you think about the show, you know, who you are and and what you like and don't like about the show and things like that. So it, it's it's obviously just a great way for us to kind of get a little bit of uniformed feedback from from all of you so we can help make the show better. Finally, one more exciting announcement. You're all invited to our debate watching parties. If you haven't heard of this before, we've, we've done this uh, a few times, not with debates, but with uh, election nights, other, other big event nights. We've set up uh, not only a live chat room on the website, but also we borrow the live feed, the live video feed from the Young Turks. If you're not familiar, the Young Turks, you know, you've heard of them <laughs> because I play them on almost every episode because uh, they're my favorite. But uh, they, uh, if you're not familiar, they actually do a video show online, theyoungturks.com. And it's not just on radio, they actually do video, they have cameras and a studio all set up, and it's a web show, basically. And with with that capacity, they're also able to do uh, live event shows whenever they want, and so they do live special event shows for election nights and debate nights. So we borrow their feed, and uh, and we actually post it on our own website, and it sits right there. So you can go, you watch uh, the Young Turks feed as they cover the debate and then have a live chat room there at the same time so you can chat with other Best of the Left fans and producers who will all be there. So uh, it, it's, you know, it's a fun time. It's a, it's a much more interesting way to watch the debate than on the news, uh, you know, some cable network. And, uh, and so certainly we hope you'll all come and... Uh, have a good time with us. Those are all the announcements for today. So just a little reminder, if you are interested in helping uh, the show at all, uh, there are several things to do. Just go to the website and click the tab at the top called support the show. 
and that details all the ways, including uh, donating a little money to uh, help cover the costs of the hosting fees um, and helping promote the show by giving five-star reviews in iTunes, voting for us at Podcast Alley, uh, digging the show on dig.com, and uh, things of that nature. That, that may be all, but, uh, but those are the big ones. So that's it for today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Just a fun.